0: Today and this time we are going to be in Mark 1 so you can open up your Bibles to Mark 1 and we will be starting in verse 9 and we will be going through 20. And once again in Mark we're seeing God's new beginning in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Mark 1 verse 9 reads this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed them. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Strong words you have for us, Lord, this morning of who you are. Lord, you do not come into the creation casually. While yes, you come humbly, it is not casual. You show us exactly who you are and you show us that you are not like us. Oh, not like us at all. That you come in the form of a beloved son with whom you are well pleased, meaning sinless and innocent. And Lord, you do not even submit to sin when it tempts you like it tempts us when we submit to it. And God, you are coming as a prophet, proclaiming your message of repentance and faith because the kingdom of God is at hand. God, would we be a church who recognizes that, that we would build up your kingdom and the gates of hell would not prevail against us. But oh God, what a strong call and a call that I forget too often. A call that calls us to you as the king and us as your servants. You make it abundantly clear when you tell them to drop their nets. You tell them to leave their father. You tell them to leave all of their belongings. You tell them to leave everything. You make it abundantly clear that following you is not a life of self. It's not a life of living for one's own loves, one's own delights. You make it abundantly clear that a life for you is a life of death to self and life to you. It help us to grasp that that is a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. God, this word is convicting to me and startling to me. But I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make it abundantly clear that it is what is right, true, and holy, and good, and that we would be listeners and doers of it. Lord, we love and praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? It's an answer that all worldviews, all ideologies, All philosophies, all peoples have to and do give an answer to. I teach a worldview class at the high school I'm at, and one of the key questions we always ask is, who do you say Jesus is? And whether people will say something explicitly about who Jesus is with their words and verbalize it and articulate it and say, either I accept Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I hold him as my savior, Or they say, I don't want Jesus, I reject Jesus, I deny him, I do not believe in him. Explicit or implicit with their actions, with the way they live, with the ways that they conduct themselves. It all is saying an answer to the question. There is no one who does not give the answer to who is Jesus. We all do. When I was a young kid growing up, There's a popular movie called Talladega Nights. Maybe some of you know that movie. If you don't, it's okay. I wouldn't necessarily recommend you guys going and seeing it now. But Talladega Nights, it's a movie about a NASCAR driver. It's a comedy of a NASCAR driver. The main character is Will, well, the actor is Will Ferrell. And the main character he plays is Ricky Bobby. And Ricky Bobby, one time in the movie, is having all of his friends and all of his family over for lunch and he begins to pray, um, as any good southerner would, of course, you know, even if we're not Christian, we're going to pray before we eat, of course. And so he begins to pray before the meal. And the way he begins to pray is he says, dear Lord, baby Jesus. And throughout the prayer, now we might pray that every once in a while, like during Christmas, but throughout the prayer, he continuously recites, dear Lord, baby Jesus, until eventually his wife has had enough of it. and He says, stop. Stop. You get that Jesus grew up, right? Come on, now. I mean, I mean, Jesus changed. Like Jesus grew up, and Ricky Bobby, the NASCAR driver, he responds back. He's like, "Well, I'm saying grace, and I like Christmas Jesus, baby Jesus, is the best." When you're saying grace, you can say grace however you want to say grace. And then, of course, or, of course, his children begin to chime in. Uh, I think one is named Texas Ranger, and I forget the other name. Just imagine those names. And one of them begins to say, "Well, I like to think about Jesus as a samurai, fighting off evil ninjas." And then, of course, Cal Naughton Jr., Ricky Bobby's best friend, begins to chip in, and he says, I like to think about Jesus leading lead vocals at a Leonard Skinner concert in a tuxedo t-shirt, and I'm in the front row of an angel band. And then Chip, which is the father-in-law of Ricky Bobby, and don't ask me how I remember all these things, I promise you I don't see the movie that often, (laughs) Chip says, he was a man, he had a beard, and... Ricky Bobby, of course, chimes in and he says, well, I'm saying grace, and I like baby Jesus. And he begins to pray, and he says, dear, tiny, infant, little baby Jesus, with your balled-up fist and your golden fleece diapers, don't even know a word yet, but still omnipotent. Somehow they threw that big theological word in there, omnipotent, right? Man, I learned real quick as a young child, and I wasn't expecting it. Everybody gives an answer to Jesus. Everybody has a picture to Jesus. And whether it's something that actually has to do with the Bible or whether it's something far out there, who knows? Samurai fighting ninjas, it's all over the place. Now it's funny, but we all do actually give an answer to Jesus. I remember when I was in the fraternity, we had this function which was called 40 questions. And during 40 questions of the function, they would ask you questions. And one of the questions was this exact question right here. Who do you say Jesus is? And there would be lots of answers that would be given, some of the answers that we're going to see right here in the text. But many of the answers were something along these lines. Well, he seemed like a good guy. Or maybe he was a myth. I don't really know. Or maybe some people would say, oh, Jesus, good guy, cool dude, and he was a great teacher. And besides, at Easter, I get candy, and Christmas, I get presents. Who wouldn't love Jesus, right? Those were the kind of answers I got. And whether it's explicit or implicit, we all have a worldview that's coming to this question, who do you say Jesus is? And we all do. But Mark, right here today, doesn't want to ask us, who do we say Jesus is? He doesn't. That's the cultural approach. That's the postmodern approach. That's the relativistic truth to this. Everybody has their own view. But what Mark wants to do is he wants to ask God, Who do you say Jesus is? So I would encourage you, as you look at this text, we're not asking some relativistic standard. We're not asking some subjective morality or some subjective view of who Jesus is. Instead of what we're doing, we are looking at exactly who Jesus is and always asking, who is it that he says Jesus is? So Let's look at three things in this text that are going to be pointed out about Jesus. And before we get to the text, I'll say three things that we're going to see in Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here's your three things. One, Jesus is going to be a priest. Jesus is going to be a priest. And that sounds archaic to some, but we'll come back to that. Two, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. And three, Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. But let's talk about the first one. Jesus is a priest. Now, some of us, that seems a little strange and it seems a little Old Testament. Why a priest? What does a priest do? Why do we need a priest? Well, just to give a little background, a priest is an intercessor or a mediator between God and man. He's someone who would be the the way the Baptists like to say it, the go-between between God and man. He goes and he communicates with the people from God and lets them know what God is like, and then he goes back to the people to tell them this is what God is like. And he stands in the way between those people so that there can actually be a relationship, that there can actually be a connection between God and man. Now that should immediately pose a question or raise a concern in your mind. Why does there need to be a mediator Why does there need to be an intercessor? Why is it there has to be this priest who ends up going in between? Well, the question is answered just right at the very beginning of the Bible. Right in the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve coming into this sinless, perfect world. But they violate God's righteous law and his covenant, and they take of the fruit and eat it, and God separates them. Because God is a holy God. God is not sinful. God is sinless. And God separates sin from himself. And the rest of the Bible is crying out with this tension, and I've talked about this tension before, this tension of sin in between God and man, and that because sin has entered the world and it has messed everything up, and I mean completely messed it up, even to the point that every single intention of our heart is desperately wicked, as Genesis 6 says, there is a separation. And there is a need for a priest, a mediator to go in between us, And so I ask that we would look to this priest right here and see why he is actually able to be a priest for us. Look at what the text begins. Verse nine in chapter one. In those days, Jesus came to Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now I just wanna hold up a quick second. When we usually think about baptism, we usually think that it's a symbol of the forgiveness or remission of sins because when we actually get baptized, what's actually going on right there is it's forgiving sins, but I just want to say you got to hold that thought. That's not Jesus. That is not what's going on here. There's nothing in the text that would seem to communicate that. Rather, because Jesus is sinless. And you're going to see it right here. Jesus's baptism is not about recognizing or cleansing him of sin. Rather, it's about recognizing that he is completely sinless, has no sin, no blame in him. Look look at the text with me. This is maybe one of the most amazing texts. I mean, I say that about a lot of texts, but this is an awesome text. Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, so Jesus up out of the water, John baptizes him down, up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, I just want you to try and envision that thought right there. This is an amazing thing. I don't know what it would be like. Jesus up out of the water, and all of a sudden, heaven's torn open. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe clouds are separating or something like that, or the sky. I don't know. But this is what begins to happen and this is how you know that it's way different baptism. Heavens are torn open and the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, is descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven and so who's the voice from heaven? You have God the Son being baptized, God the Spirit descending upon the Son and the voice, who is it? It's God the Father and hear what he says. He doesn't say, I've made you my beloved son. He doesn't say, I've cleansed you from your sins. Instead he recognizes exactly who Jesus is is this is an amazing thing about jesus you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and the point of this scene right here jesus's baptism is the point that jesus is completely holy completely blameless and because he is these things completely holy completely blameless without sin unlike any of us because we are all tarnished with sin he can be the priest He can be the mediator he can be the intercessor he's the one who can actually go to god because he's without sin he can actually go to man because he is a man and he can come into the form of a servant like us and be our representative before god now this text is also very awesome because it's not just about the fact that he is the priest and his identity It's also from his identity that he begins to live it out. And look what begins to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to begin to drive Jesus. In verse 12, it says, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And so what's going on right here? Well, this text doesn't give us a whole lot of details here, but if you look at Matthew 5 and also you look at a text in Luke, you'll see this is Jesus' temptation account. When he's going out into a desolate place, when he's going into the wilderness where Satan is going to be tempting him to sin. Much like back in the garden where Adam and Eve were not in a desert and had everything against them. They had everything for them. They weren't in a desolate place. They had all the food that they could eat and the serpent is going to creep right up to Jesus and tempt him in the exact same way. Look at the text with me right here. Like I said, not much detail. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Satan. And like I said, this text doesn't give us a whole lot of detail of what takes place. Mark is kind of like the shortened gospel and the quick gospel. But in the other temptation accounts, what we learn is they're tempting Jesus with this temptation. Prove that you are the son of God. Prove it because I'm not buying it. But what does Jesus know? Jesus knows his identity is not decided by what Satan thinks of him or it isn't decided by how Satan questions him. It's already been declared by almighty God. Remember, who did God say he was? My beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And just a quick break for us for a quick second from the narrative is whenever God, for you Christians in here, whenever God has declared you to be his, his beloved son, his child, his saint, Satan can do nothing to accuse you. It's the same thing right here. God is the standard of truth. God is the standard of righteousness. And God says Jesus is righteous. And Jesus holds on to it. And he doesn't say it in the text, but we know it from the outcome of the text. At the end of verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him knows we understand at the very end, he overcomes all the temptations and he doesn't fall to Satan. And that's an amazing thought because what Jesus did is he did the exact thing, but even better, and he overcame everything that Adam failed to. Like I said, Adam was in a luscious place, a garden, he wasn't in a desert. He had all the fruit of the trees, he had everything with him, and he fell to sin. But Jesus, with all the odds stacked against him, in a desert with nothing right there, overcomes sin. And one of the foolish things that we do sometimes is we'll look back at that Genesis 3 account of Adam and Eve, and I know we do this because I teach high schoolers, and I hear this at least five times a year, is they'll say, if I was in the garden, Adam and Eve, I wouldn't eat the fruit of the tree. We say that, like, people say that all the time. And I just want to say, the Bible says, no, you would eat it every day. We eat the fruit of the tree every single day. There is no one who is on this earth who does not sin. Every single one of us has committed the wages of sin, which is leading to death. We are so proud, so proud. But what we need to do right here is we need to recognize Jesus' innocence, his holiness, his superiority to us, and recognize that we need him as a priest to go in between us and God, to be our mediator, to be someone who can ransom us, bring us to God. But that's not the end of Jesus' priestly work because what we understand is even though Jesus has not committed sins, God is still a righteous and holy God. I need you to follow with this. I need you to kick, like, pick up on this because this is the tension of the Bible. God is a holy, righteous judge and when sin comes before him, Because he is holy and he has a perfect standard, he will punish sin. And so even though we have Jesus who's coming in the place, he's perfect righteous and he doesn't have to be punished for sin, our still sin is hanging out there. Our sin is still being accumulated. And you and I, we're sinning every single day. And the question is, even though we have that holy person between us, how is that sin going to be dealt with? How is that sin going to be paid for? How is God's justice going to be executed? Well, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's quite interesting to see in Mark 1, verse 10, when it talks about the heavens being torn open, and I want you to think about that imagery, heavens being torn open, that verb right there in the Greek is only used in one other place in the book of Mark. One other place. And it's used in Mark 15, verse 38. And in Mark 15, 38, it's right after Mark 15.37, obviously, but Mark 15.37, where what happened? Jesus gave up his last breath and died on the cross. But then hear what Mark 15, 38 is describing. and I think it's even on the slides for you. It talks about in the temple, which is where God's place was, and it's where the priest would go in between the people, and that he would represent the people for him. And what happened to the temp, to what happened to the curtain or the veil? It was torn. The heavens were torn open. The curtain was torn, which showed that people now, because of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered not a lamb on the cross, but offered his body, his life, his very being, poured out for you on the cross, poured out for you, sinners, so that you could have access to God. Jesus is the great high priest the better priest than any priest of the Old Testament. All the other priests had sinned, he never sinned. And Jesus went to the place where he did not deserve to go and he died there on the cross to atone for our sins and ransom us from the wrath of God. And that is the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel can only be accepted one way and it's through faith. And I would encourage you as you are sitting here and you're thinking, I would think about that that news right there, that good news of the gospel, and ask yourself, do I actually believe Jesus is my priest? Do I believe he's my priest? Because that's the only way to God. It's one thing who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is not only a priest, but he is also a prophet. And so, once again, take a step back from the text. What's a prophet? For those of you who have been with us through this last series, um, when uh, we were uh, going through the book of Hosea. so I almost forgot what we were in last series. The book of Hosea, I don't know how I could forget. Um, Hosea is a prophet. And what's Hosea doing in his life? He's going all around Israel. He's talking to all the Israelites. And he's giving them a message. And the message is, you need to turn away from your sins and you need to follow after God. And Jesus is coming just like that, like a prophet but even better than a prophet because we don't want to just minimize him to a prophet. He's prophet. He's the prophet who is God also. It's God coming to be a prophet to us greater than any prophet who has ever seen in all the earth. And so here comes his message as a prophet. Verse 14. Now John was arrested. I'm going to skip over that right now but we're going to come, come back to that. That's important. John was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, and here it is, the gospel of God. Now, the gospel of God is just the message of the good news of God. And so we should ask, well, what is the good news of God? I've heard lots of good news. Maybe we've heard good news. There is no better news than this. This is the good news. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So say it one more time. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So here is what the gospel is. Jesus wants to pick up on that first phrase right there, the time is fulfilled. What he's talking about, what time is fulfilled? The time for all of Old Testament prophets. The time of all Old Testament scriptures that were pointing to something. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think it's just kind of hanging out there, doing its own thing, and it's not really connected to the New Testament. So false. All the Old Testament finds it's yes, it's amen, and it's fruition in right here, Jesus. Right here, Jesus. And to us in the scriptures, because we're all Gentiles and we're not Jews, we don't necessarily always study the Old Testament as much as we should, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but that would mean the world to a Jew. It would mean the world. You're saying everything that was back there is now here in person, in flesh, speaking to us? And Jesus wants to say, yep, yes, he is. The Messiah, the Savior, the one who's going to come and ransom the world to himself right here in the flesh. And what's he bringing He's bringing with him this awesome message of the kingdom of God. Now I want you to, real quick, and this will be very quick, just think about for a moment about what you think of as a kingdom. A kingdom. When I say that word, what comes to your mind? I think what comes to mind, or my mind, is I think about big armies, or I think about Lord of the Rings. If any guys think about Lord of the Rings in here? No? Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, Sarah, awesome. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So Lord of the Ring, I mean like big castles, crowns, armies, dragons. That's what I think about. Like when I think about kingdoms, that's what I think of. And I think that's what they would have been thinking about right here. Because if you're a Jew and you're hearing the kingdom of God is here, you're hearing scriptures like what was said to David in 2 Samuel 7, where God said, I'm going to keep a king on my throne who's going to reign over the whole earth and who is eventually going to bring my salvation to the whole earth. Or if you're a Roman or a Gentile, what you're thinking about when you hear about the kingdom is you're thinking, whoa, kingdom? You mean you're gonna overthrow Caesar? Because think about it, just in this time for those words just to be mentioned, it just reeks of a revolt. It just says insurrection to the fullest. Kingdom coming? Caesar's gonna be overthrown? This must be a mighty kingdom. And in all of my imagery, the Jewish imagery of what they thought about a mighty kingdom like David's or the Roman um, imagery of a kingdom, They're all false. They all fall short of what God's kingdom actually looks like. See, God's kingdom is not being waged with swords. It's not being built with stones. It's not with a crown. Even though Jesus does wear a crown, notice the crown he's wearing, it's a crown of thorns. It's waged, waged, God's kingdom is waged with the gospel message. Look at what it says right here is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, God's kingdom, God's reign, does not begin to be built by building mighty massive buildings. It does not begin to be built by looking like you have a kingdom or a theocracy or a government under a Christian nation. That's not what it actually begins to look like. Rather, what it looks like is it looks like the humble and lowly proclamation of the gospel of me going to people and telling them about the good news of Christ Jesus, who's come into the world and to forgive them of their sins. And slowly, as people are converted, as people are renewed by the Holy Spirit, as people are brought into the family of God, the kingdom of God begins to grow. And you say, well, how does that not turn into a kingdom? How does that not actually begin to turn into something that's mighty, massive, big, and powerful in an army? Well, the reason I don't think that is because the person we skipped over right at the beginning of these verses. Who was it? John the Baptist. And if there was someone who was conquered by the kingdom of God, it was John the Baptist. He knew the message of the kingdom, and he knew the message of the kingdom was one like Jesus teaches in Matthew 13, where the kingdom of God is small, like a mustard seed, and it grows up into the biggest of trees. And look at what the kingdom of God cost John is John living it up in luxury, big crown, is he in a castle? No. John, because he's committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, ends up in prison. Notice that. And do not squeak by that. John, because he was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is ending up in prison. What does that tell us? God's plan is not for a big army. God's plan is not for big military might. God's plan is through the humble, the lowly, and the proclamation of the mighty gospel, the message. People will come to faith in Christ, but that message, it might get you arrested. And maybe even worse, it might even get you killed. But you know what would happen then? We act like that's so bad. (laughs) The apostles in the book of Acts, whenever they got persecuted, they said, praise God because we're worthy of persecution. And I just recently had someone say, because of the things that I believe, they said, you're going to get locked up to me recently this past week. And we act like that's so bad sometimes. No. Because if we get persecuted, locked up, or worse, killed, who do we end up looking like? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Blessed are those who are persecuted (laughs) and and reviled for my namesake. Brothers and sisters, this is what will have to happen is we will have to be ones who go out and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the message at whatever cost. And it will spread. And it will spread. And it will grow. And even at great cost. We're in a society that doesn't prohibit this type of idea. What did John get locked up for? He got locked up for telling about a kingdom. We're going to go and tell about that kingdom that rules over all this earth. And if we get locked up, so what? We'll get really good at prison ministry. Praise the Lord. But that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. It's not impressive, and the world isn't going to like it, but it has to be proclaimed. Now, we've seen Jesus is a priest and Jesus is a prophet. One other thing we have left to see Jesus is, and he's not a king. I think I said he's a king. He is the king. And I want to say something before I actually begin to get into this part of the sermon. For some of you, this might be one of the most offensive. Text I would talk about, and you say, "How could it be offensive?" We're just talking about fishing in this text. It might be offensive. Some of you, this is going to be really convicting, and I'm not afraid of conviction. Conviction is a good thing. I read this text and I was convicted. And I want to ask you, as we actually begin to pull apart this text and look at what's exactly going on, why is it that you're either offended or convicted? Offended. Might be the side of, oh, Jesus can't tell me what to do. He's not the ruler of my life. He can't tell me what I should do with my morality or anything else in my life. That's offense. Conviction is, man, I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. Man, I haven't been as faithful as I thought I was. And I need to repent and turn away. Now, one of those, the offense, doesn't embrace Jesus as king. It doesn't embrace actually any of the things we're talking about right here. But conviction... If you actually are convicted by these things, good. Praise the Lord. Because what will actually begin to do is it will begin to say, oh, I'm not that perfect. I actually need the priest. I actually need to look at him and I actually need to be conformed to him, not myself. That's what will begin to happen. So you say, okay, is it that offensive? Maybe it's not that offensive. I just think it is. But here's why I think this text is offensive. Here's why I think this text is offensive is because we live in a society that prizes human autonomy. And what I mean by human autonomy is the freedom to make your own decisions. I hear it all the time, the freedom to be whoever you want to be. I hear it all the time, to follow your heart wherever it leads you. That's the type of world we live in. And I hear it all the time. Whether we look outside of the church or inside of the church. Outside of the church, we see this with sexuality. You can be whatever you want to be. Whatever you want to be, whoever you want to be, with sad <laughs> sexuality. One of the saddest stats that I saw this past week and it actually did cause me to really grieve, and it just screams of human autonomy is that half the children in New York are killed by abortion every year. Half the children, half of the children. And what does that scream? It screams convenience. It screams autonomy. It screams, I get to do whatever I want. And that is what's screaming at us. But it's not just that. It's also in here. It's the decisions we'll make of how we spend our Sunday. Maybe we had a long night the night before, and we want to sleep in. And we want to do our own thing. Or maybe... Or, or, or maybe we want to get up early in the morning and read our Bibles. Or maybe we don't. All these things are screaming of human autonomy. But Jesus, he doesn't want any of it. And like I said earlier, Jesus doesn't come in softly. He comes in saying, this earth and everything in it is mine. And listen to how he talks to these people. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Now just imagine the picture real quick. Jesus walking alongside the road, random dude, okay? These guys do not know him. And Jesus all of a sudden says, follow me. Now let's just imagine real quick, Brother Robert was for some reason walking by the playground and he saw a bunch of kids playing and he said, follow me. There'd be some problems and 911 would be called really quick. And it should be, right? But this is the amazing nature of this. One, it's miraculous, okay? It's miraculous that they're even gonna follow him, that they're gonna come after him. They're recognizing this guy's different than anybody else we've ever seen in all the world. But two, you need to look at what Jesus is demanding of them. What's going on right here in the text? And Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. In verse 18, this is so important. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now we're gonna come back to that, what that means, but let's look at verse 19 as well. And going on a little farther, so he keeps walking. <laughs> this is just crazy to me. It's like I'm walking by the playground. I say, follow me. And a bunch of kids follow me. Then I walk into Flat Rock Ridge and I get a bunch of kids, follow me. This is like what this scene is. It's, it's crazy to think about. But this is what begins to happen. Verse 19. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were on the boat mending their nets, And immediately he called them. And notice this. This is insane. And hopefully you're picking up on the tension here. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I don't know if we're seeing what's going on. Like we just read over this story all the time. Like, oh, that's just how things happened. That doesn't happen. Recognize the magnitude, the weight. These guys are working. This is their this is their um five this is their like 9 to 5 job. This is how they're supplying for their families. This is how they're bu- this is how they're paying for their house. This is how they're making a living. This is everything to them. And Jesus says, "Leave it. Come and follow me." Now, I just imagine Jesus walking around to any of us in our 9 to 5 jobs and coming up and saying, "Hey, follow me. Leave what you have here behind." Would any of us do that? I don't know if I would just do that in the middle of a lesson teaching I don't, I don't I don't know I don't know Jesus or even further Jesus not even just the people who are in a business people who are in the business with their father their father the one who's probably running the business got them in the business and they're probably going to end up running the business one day too and he says don't just leave the business leave your father leave your father I said Recognize the magnitude of this because I don't think we do. Most of the time our conception is we're going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus as long as it's convenient or doesn't disadvantage or doesn't affect me in my job, my family, the things I like to do, my hobbies, whatever else it is, my friends. As long as it doesn't affect those things, yeah, I'm with Jesus. I hear that all the time or I see it all the time. And Jesus just says, that's not what I'm calling to you. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to a total, whole, and full life obedience. And there's no in-between. There's no in-between. All the time, we just want to think, yeah, Sunday, that's my time for God. And the rest of our life, we just kind of space it out and we say, that's the other people's time. That's not what Jesus is after. Jesus is after a total and full life obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who exercised this well in his own life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up dying in a Nazi camp in Germany in the 1940s or 1950s, I forget exactly when it was. Died in a Nazi camp and he wrote this. He was a pastor theologian and he was a part of actually the Valkyrie plot that tried to kill Hitler and he was all about discipling people and following Jesus and he was even helping people be discipled when Hitler was ruling over Germany. Hear what he said. When Jesus calls a man, so think about this, are you, like, do you, just ask yourself, are you following Jesus right now? Because this is what he's calling you to do, and I completely believe what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and I could back up with so many scriptures, and we just did. When Jesus calls a man, and if you're saying, I'm following Jesus, here's what he says, he bids him come and die. Do we hear that? I think sometimes we always are like, oh yeah, of course I want Jesus to be a part of my life. I love Jesus. No, we don't. Naturally, we do not. Only a heart that has been born again, only a heart that has seen Jesus as truly precious, only a heart that truly sees Jesus as more treasure or more valuable than anything else in the world will say something like this and actually follow him. Is that how you see Jesus? Is that how you see Jesus? Because I think sometimes if Jesus asked us to wake up and go to a Sunday school an hour and a half earlier, we wouldn't do it. I think if Jesus asked us to go and share the gospel with our neighbor, but because of uncomfortability that we feel and because of the tension and because we don't want to look weird, we wouldn't do it. And I want to say, Jesus calls you to much more than that. What's your excuse? What's your excuse? Because the costs couldn't be higher. They're no higher. I want to finish out with one last thing that Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite missionaries, said. He said this, um, and it's actually, I'm adapting the quote, but he said this, if Jesus is not king of all, he is not king at all. Is Jesus king? And if he is, it's either of all or it's not at all. So this is who Jesus is. Once again, not from my subjective lens, not from our perspective we we'll do that, and and here's what this is going to happen: is you will be tempted to walk out of here. I'm going to say this: you'll be tempted to walk out of here and say, "I didn't like the things he said," and that's fine. You can take that up with me all day long. Do it. Wrestle with this. Does this say something different? If it does, then I'll repent. I'll go back. If it doesn't, you got this to deal with. So Jesus is a priest, he's a prophet, and he's a king. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. God, I am so unworthy to preach your text. I am a wicked sinner, flawed to my heart, with terrible motivations. I ask that you would cleanse me from my sin. I ask that you would cleanse us all from our sin and that we would repent and trust in you. God, I love and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen.